Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. Before we get started today, a shout out to all our Patreon members for their continued support and a special welcome to Jenny Singh, our newest Patreon member. We honestly couldn't make the podcast without support from Patreon members like Jenny. And if you wish to support the podcast, then go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. As always, the links are in the show notes. Now, before we start today's interview, it is worth pointing out that this is the third in a series on the Valentine's Day school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018. It's often referred to as the Parkland, Florida shooting. So if you aren't familiar with the details of the case, then we cover the incident in detail on episode two in season three. So it may pay to go back and listen to that episode just for context. But what you should know is that 17 students and teachers lost their lives in what is the deadliest high school shooting in America. And if you missed last week's episode, we had a very special guest, Ryan Petty, join us. My daughter, Elena, was killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And since that time, I've become a public safety and school safety advocate. And if you haven't listened to Ryan's interview, it's episode three this season and is called Remembering Elena. And with that, on with today's episode called Remembering Alex with yet another very special guest. My name is Max Schachter, and my little boy, Alex, was 14 at the time that he was murdered in his English class in the Parkland school shooting, Valentine's Day of 2018, and I'm a national school safety advocate. And Alex, if you look at any of the pictures, he's always smiling and happy, but Alex had had a lot of tragedy in his life before that day. My wife, Alex's mother, passed away when he was only four years old of a heart malformation. She wasn't sick, just I couldn't wake her up one day. So, you know, Alex had lost his mother. Ten years later, I I sent Alex to school and I thought that he would come home to me like he has every other day. And it's so sad. We just had the four-year mark. We don't call them anniversaries. They're not happy occasions. They're reminders of what happened. But, you know, us victims' families live with us every day. But, you know, as far as who Alex was, Alex was the kind of little boy that that you would want your son or daughter to be friends with. Alex was athletic. He played a lot of basketball on the Parkland Rec basketball team where he won multiple championships, a really good athlete. And then Alex's passion was music. In middle school, Alex developed a, a love for playing the trombone and was in the band in middle school. And he actually doubled up and took multiple instruments in middle school to get really proficient at it so that he could play in the high school marching band. And that's what he did. 
And he went on to to help the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Eagle Regiment Marching Band win the state title just several months before the shooting. So after my wife passed away, several years later, friends of friends knew my story and connected me to a lady who had lost her husband in New York. Karen and I started dating. We fell in love. She lived in Port Washington, and she had two little girls at the time. Alex has one brother, and we had to decide, do I move to New York or does she move to Florida? And we made the wrong decision. And we decided to move to Parkland. Ten years after our spouses pass away, you know, Alex is murdered in his English class. You know, Alex is with me every day. He lives through me. And I know that if we can fix the failures that prevented us from stopping the Parkland school shooting before it happened, if we can fix the failures that led to 17 people being murdered, And the lack of law enforcement response that happened during the Parkland school shooting, I know that if we can fix the failures, we can save lives moving forward. You know, that's a lot to unpack, as you can imagine. I wanted to ask you, you know, because clearly you had an incredible bond with your son, which might sound funny for for people to say, of course, everybody has a bond with their child. But You clearly had a very special relationship with him, particularly after the loss of your wife, I'm sure. Do you remember the last time that you talked to him or spoke to him? Yeah, it was the day that I sent him off to school. I said, have a great day. I love you. And I'll see you later. And that never came to pass. And and I miss him every day. You know, I can't relate to that, but I can appreciate it because of my work in law enforcement. And I wonder about the paralysis that comes with that. I mean, you've been very active from the very beginning. How do you do that? It's difficult. Obviously, many days, I don't want to get out of bed. But a lot of what has propelled me and motivated me has been my efforts to try to fix the failures. And my grief and my anger has pushed me to try to fix the things that should have been fixed a long time ago. You know, just to give you an example, there were many communications failures on that day and the radios failed. Law enforcement couldn't communicate. I'm still trying to fix those failures here in Broward County. They're still not fixed. Tell me about what you think the communication failures were that day. So there were a lot of interoperability problems, and this is not a new issue. And so to describe what happened, when the shooting happened, there was no immediate notification to law enforcement. So we didn't have a panic app. We had one SRO on campus, but he didn't do anything. So there was no immediate notification to students and staff and to law enforcement. That's what needs to happen. So when The murderer attacked Marjorie Stoneman Douglas there. It's a huge campus. There's 13 buildings. He attacked one three-story building and went floor to floor and shot in the hallway and into the classroom windows from the hallway. And through those windows, he was able to murder Alex and two other kids in just Alex's classroom, injure five others, and then go classroom to classroom and floor to floor, killing and injuring people. 17 people were murdered and 17 were injured. So on the second floor, 
they heard the gunshots from the first floor. Alex's classroom was really the warning shots for all the other kids on the first and second floor, but the kids on the third floor didn't hear the gunshots. The fire alarm went off from the smoke from the weapon. And so there was no immediate notification to people in the building, let alone people in the other 12 buildings. So when the fire alarm went off on the third floor, you've got all these kids that are streaming out of the classrooms and going down the stairwell as the murderer is going up the stairwell. Now, thank God, most of the kids got back in the classrooms, but five did not. Five students were murdered and one teacher on the third floor. And then on the third floor, he set up a bipod trying to do a Las Vegas to shoot through the window of the third floor teacher's lounge to try to kill as many people uh, and students that were streaming out of the other 12 buildings because there was no notification to the rest of the campus. All they heard was a fire alarm. So no immediate notification to the kids in that building, any of the kids on the campus. There was no code red. And simultaneously, there was no immediate notification to law enforcement. So law enforcement was responding. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know where the murderer was. And when that's happening, you're relying on one individual. The only guy with a gun on that campus was the SRO, Scott Peterson, and he was a coward. So he did nothing. He went to the front of the building, heard the reverberations of these massive rounds from this AR-15. He heard those, felt those, and then he got scared and went and hid behind a concrete pillar for 48 minutes. He didn't communicate any of that, where the murderer was or anything like that. So responding law enforcement, having a lack of information, they all waited outside for eight minutes. They didn't go in the building for 11 minutes until after the shooting started. While people are bleeding and dying in that building, they're outside. I believe that if they had access to the cameras, which they did not prior to the shooting, they do now. But Broward County Public Schools did not allow them to have access to the cameras prior to the shooting. I think that things would have been different, that they would have gone in the building. And now when responding law enforcement arrived, you had multiple agencies on scene. And the radios, the Motorola radios throttled, which is a self-mechanism that Motorola builds into their radios. So basically the radios shut down. Their radios, when you hit that, button to talk. It's called the PTT button, the push to talk button. It's just boop, and there's nothing there. So the radios failed. The Coral Springs Police Department couldn't communicate with the Broward Sheriff's Office. The Broward Sheriff's Office could not communicate with themselves because there was so much traffic on the radios. The radios shut down. Max, it sounds like it was just chaos. Yeah, no. And it is in all of these situations. It's never not going to be chaos, but I'm trying to fix the failures that happened in Parkland because this was the second mass shooting that Broward County had. We had an airport shooting where the radios failed. They didn't fix it then, and it plagued us again. And so four years later, I'm still trying to fix these problems. Broward County has still not fixed these communications issues, and it's a big problem. 
So Max, in shooting situations, is Parkland an example of how we never seem to learn the lessons? Or do you think that we do learn lessons in each of these shootings? We've made a lot of progress in Florida after our shooting. We've drastically changed the safety and security of our schools. But we are definitely not where we should be four years after. We haven't fixed all the failures. We've instituted a lot of measures, not only on the school hardening side, we've implemented on the prevention side, we've implemented threat assessment teams in all the schools, but we still don't have a reunification plan for every school district. That's not mandated statewide. Hopefully we're going to get there in the new school safety bill. The communications problems have not been fixed. It's just infuriating to me that in Parkland, prior to the shooting, if you dial 911 in Parkland, that call goes to the Coral Springs Police Department. If there's a fire emergency, then the Coral Springs Fire Department gets sent down. If it's a law enforcement emergency, Parkland has contracted with the Broward Sheriff's Office. So they have to transfer that call, Kate, to the Broward Sheriff's Office. So you tell your story to the Coal Springs Police Department. Listen, there's an active shooter. There's a guy with an assault rifle shooting and killing people. You tell your whole story to the Coal Springs Police Department. Then they say, hold on one second. Oh, this is law enforcement. Let me transfer you to Broward Sheriff's Office. That process takes a minute and 20 seconds. That's pretty common. Yeah. So that happened during the shooting. And I'm still trying to fix those call transfer issues today. It's still not fixed. Max, a lot of people would have been paralyzed by this trauma, but you sound like you've taken it and really directed it towards change. How long did it take before you found the power to do that after the incident? And what have you done specifically? Yeah, so Sarah, after the shooting, I could not sit and let this happen. I wanted to find out what happened to Alex and I wanted to hold those individuals accountable and after a lot of these tragedies, the state forms a commission to investigate the shooting, like they did in Sandy Hook. And so that's what we did in Florida. The governor of Florida formed the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Commission. And I wanted to be on that commission. And so I was appointed to be one of the 15 commissioners. And it's mostly state, governmental, and law enforcement officials. There are two parents. And so I'm one of them. And so that's been a lot of my work here. And so It was really hard because at every meeting, and we still have those meetings, I'm reliving all of the events that led to Alex's murder. And our statute said that we were supposed to investigate all the interactions between the Parkland murderer and the school board, all the interactions between the Parkland murderer and law enforcement, and then come up with recommendations to make schools safer. I just... uh, I wanted to do something. I wasn't going to sit still. I wanted to prevent this from happening to other families. And so that's why I do what I do. That's why I've done all this work in Florida and nationally. And that's why I travel the country to get my message out because this happened in Parkland. But if you travel outside Parkland, people don't understand what happened here. And our country is so reactionary. Nothing gets done until after these horrible events happen. And there's just a lot of complacency around the country. And so that's why I travel around and tell Alex's story, because I know that we can save lives if we just implement the lessons learned. 
Do you feel like now that time has passed four years, do you feel like people were more open to taking action earlier on? Is it getting harder or easier for people to move towards change? Yeah, no, absolutely. The farther away you get from these incidents, the less people remember and the less motivation they have to fixing them. So yeah, that's why I travel around and try to get this message out. And it's not going to stop. We continue to have mass shootings all over the country every day. And it's just absolutely horrible that nothing has happened. COVID was really bad, obviously, on our country. And a lot of schools have pushed school safety down on the priority list. And I'm really afraid that with this mental health crisis we've got going on in the United States, and especially in our kids, we're seeing a lot of depression, a lot of attempted suicide, you know, cutting And so I'm afraid that we're going to have more school shootings this year if we don't start enacting some of the lessons learned and prioritize safety and security like we should. Max, what do you want to happen? Well, there's a lot of lessons learned from the Parkland school shooting. And it's not just Parkland. It's if you look at all these tragedies, there is a common thread where every school should have a threat assessment team. Every state should have an anonymous tip app. Every school should have these school hardening measures where you have these emergency notifications, you know, to every school and all law enforcement. And frankly, there should be like an Amber Alert we have for missing kids. You should have some kind of alert for a mass shooting as well to notify your citizenry. So you've got 330 million Americans We've got to be training them on stop the bleed, on active shooter preparedness, on what to do to prevent and to take out these assailants. Because if you're waiting for law enforcement to arrive, you're just going to be having a lot of dead bodies. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. 
Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Obviously, you're talking about this from a point of hindsight now. But if you go back to beforehand, how much did you know about your school's threat management system? I'm a parent. What would you say to me? What should I have done to prepare myself and my children? I was you four years ago, exactly. Sarah. Yeah, um, yeah. So I had a small insurance company before this, and I never went to Washington. I never did any advocacy prior to this. I never did any public speaking, and I didn't know anything about school safety prior to this. So after the shooting, I have three other children and I want to make sure that nothing happened to them. So I've got Ryan and I've got Ryan's sisters as well. And so what I found out was that every school in Florida and every school in a lot of states, I'm not sure if this is true in the UK, but every school reports incidents of violence and drugs to their state department of education. And so what I found out was that all this data is there, but it was in a very unusable format. So when I went to go look at this data, I want to see how safe my kids' school were to find out how many fights there were, how many weapons possessions incidents, how many bullying incidents. I went to go look at this data and to see how safe my kids' school was. And this information was very, very difficult to find. I couldn't analyze it. So we created this dashboard. So the advice that I could give parents is to get involved. And unfortunately, for parents, you're not really given any information. You have no idea what's happening inside your kid's school after you drop them off. So that's one thing. So if you go to Safe Schools for Alex, that's what we try to do. We try to empower parents by giving them information so that they can have an intelligent conversation with their school district. And if people go to Safe Schools for Alex and they click on school safety resources, you'll see a really plethora of information on how to make your school safe. I think one of the best developments that came out of the Parkland school shooting was this new federal school safety clearinghouse. And so this was an idea that I came up with after the shooting to streamline all this information and create a one-stop shop for all school safety best practices, resources, and funding streams. And so I worked with the previous administration to create this federal school safety clearinghouse. So I would recommend all of your listeners to go to it. It's housed on schoolsafety.gov. And so if they go to schoolsafety.gov, they can find all the information they need. And then schoolsafety.gov has a really great tool. It's called their safety readiness tool. And then I would recommend every parent and every school administrator to fill out this safety readiness tool. And by answering a series of 10 questions based on the 10 foundational elements of school safety, it will tell you how your posture is for school safety and where your gaps are and what you should do first and what you should do second. And so that's one of the things I'd recommend parents to do is to go to schoolsafety.gov and make sure that their school administrator and their principal has answered those 10 questions and shown them they should make public that report. After they answer these questions, it prints out a priority list, what you need to do first, what you need to do second, and how ready you are on the safety readiness continuum. And then prints out a tailored PDF to show you exactly where you need to fill the gaps 
And if you do have gaps, to direct you to grant dollars to, to fix those. Hey, Max, you have so much knowledge now that you didn't have four years ago. What was it like right after the shooting for the Parkland community? What's it like in a community when that happens in that first day? For me, it was really you know, devastating, obviously, to lose Alex. Not only to lose your son, to have your son predecease you is absolutely the most horrible thing a parent could ever experience. But, and I had lost my wife, so I knew what grief was. But then to have, you know, a member of your family killed in a mass murder, it's just another added dimension to it and have it being in such a public manner. And then to have all these failures come out that we knew that this was not just some individual that wasn't on anyone's radar. He was a violent individual from age three. He had accumulated over 55 different disciplinary incidents. Law enforcement was at his house over 40 times. 19 different times he was seen with a gun, a knife, a weapon on social media, and, and nothing was done. So, you know, it's all of these exposure and all these failures that make the trauma for people like myself to deal with this grief. And that's what fueled my anger and my desire to make sure this never happened again. Obviously, for the community, it's devastating after a lot of these tragedies. <clears throat> and if you look at the area that's had more tragedies than anywhere in, in the world, like mass shootings would be in this Colorado area. So in Colorado, <clears throat> you've had, you had Columbine, you had the Aurora Theater shooting in that 30-mile area. So you had the Arapaho High School shooting. You had the STEM shooting. You've had just horrible amounts of tragedy. And when you ask about the effects on the community, you've had more children commit suicide as a result of these horrible tragedies and the depression that, that just permeates throughout the society and the PTSD. And, and that's just one of the things that happens after these horrible tragedies. If communities don't get in the proper services and if they don't give the proper services, like we did not do things right here in Parkland. And so just to give you an example, they set up mental health facilities in Parkland. And so at the school, they set up counselors in like the media center. And so you would have kids go in and start telling their stories to the counselors, but they didn't have any partitions. So, you know, you had kids crying and other kids hearing all these stories from everybody. You had a rotation of counselors. So like kids would go back the next day and the day after, and they would not be the same counselors there. So they would have to repeat their stories all over again. You had counselors breaking down and crying in their sessions. So it just was not done right. They made a lot of mistakes. And we had multiple children commit suicide after our tragedy. And it's just devastating. You know, it's not just people like myself that are impacted. It, it permeates the entire community. That's why in a lot of these communities, we have these resiliency centers, and we have one here that's done a lot of good work to try to help the community. So out of my experience, one of the things that I wanted to create is this mass violence initiative to help the next community. And it made no sense to me that we were having to figure out this all on our own. 
And so, you know, I said, why don't we have experts from all these other tragedies come to help us? And there was no effort to do that at that point in time. The only effort that I know of is the National Association of Secondary School Principals as a principals recovery network. And so they have principals from former tragedies come and help the next principal. And so I wanted to do that on a larger scale. So I worked with the former administration. They liked it, but it never got off the ground. And so I'm happy to say that the Biden administration launched several months ago, the Mass Violence Advisory Initiative, MVAI. And so it's an agreement between the Bureau of Justice Assistance and the International Association of Chiefs of Police so that when the next tragedy happens and I'm on the team, we can surge resources into that next community. We can provide assistance to help them so that they don't have to figure all this out on their own. We've been through this and every situation is different, but we know how the story goes. And I've seen this movie before. And so we can help them. And so we've got a lot of great subject matter experts on the Mass Violence Advisory Initiative, individuals like the former chief of police of the Aurora Theater shooting, Dan Oates, the former chief of the Orlando Police Department, now Sheriff John Mina, who was there during Pulse. And so you've got all these great experts that have lived this before that can help the next community. Yeah, I'm part of the MBIA, so I know the value of it. Hey, Max, did they do active shooter training at your child's school? Not before the shooting. Max, what would you say to people that are resistant to active shooter drills for their children in schools? I'd recommend they listen to this podcast. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I get it. And that complacency is permeated across our world. I had a choice. Do I move to New York to be with Karen and the girls? No, we moved to Parkland because we thought it was safe. We thought our school was safe. We thought... The administrators were taking this seriously, but they weren't. And when we interviewed the principal of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and we asked him, if there was a threat to shoot up your school, did you expect to know about it? He says, no, that's not my job. That's somebody else's job. And when we asked him how many threats were there to shoot up your school, he didn't really know. He wasn't taking this seriously. So there was a lot of complacency. And he didn't prioritize this issue at all. But Max, you know what people would say about that? A lot of people would say schools have a lot of problems. Teachers have a lot of stuff on their shoulders already. They're worried about all these other things. And the chance that there's going to be a school shooting in my school is so rare. I agree with you. And thank God you are correct that school shootings are rare. And so that's why Safe Schools for Alex's mission is to reduce violence on campus. If we can reduce bullying, we can reduce kids trying to commit suicide, we can reduce active shooter events, we can make our society safer when kids get out of school. So our mission is not just to prevent active assailant events. Obviously, they are very rare, but it's to reduce violence on campus. And that's the reason why we created the school safety dashboard. So now parents can go online. And look at exactly what's happening inside your school. And to give parents this information to really equip them with the information they need to have these intelligent conversations with their school principal and administrator, your school board member, you've got to ask a lot of questions. And what are the procedures? What are the protocols? 
But Sarah, you're right. I never thought it was going to happen in Parkland. Mm. I guarantee you, they never thought it was going to happen in Oxford, Michigan. The Oxford, Michigan high school, they trained the kids and the staff what to do after the shooting started. They did drills with them, but they focused on after the gun went off. They didn't do the things they needed to do on the prevention side to prevent that from even happening in the first place. So yeah. uh, nobody thinks it's going to happen to them. I agree with you. And everybody is busy with their daily lives. But all you have to do is look about what's happening. And it's not just schools. Obviously, we understand that. It's churches. It's synagogues. It's a Walmart. It's everywhere. You've got to be vigilant. And this ain't Kansas anymore. And we don't live in a, a serene environment. There's a lot of danger out there. I would encourage all of your listeners to go to safeschoolsforalex.org to look at all the resources we have to make your school safe, to educate you on best practices and lessons learned so that you can have these intelligent conversations. Don't be shy. This is your kid's school and you need to impress upon your administrators how important school safety is, that it's not just about school shootings, it's about violence. Four years on and there's still no conclusion to the case. How does that affect you as a parent? So it's really painful. You know, Alex is at the cemetery with his mother and this piece of shit is at prison getting fan mail. So it's infuriating and he should be held accountable and justice should be served an eye for an eye. He should not breathe air on this earth. He should be put to death immediately. He is a violent, violent individual. He should not be here. There's no reason he should be alive today. You live in a state that allows capital punishment, right? Yes, thank God. It's really, really upsetting and painful that nothing has happened. You know, his defense team was just delay, delay, delay for three years, Sarah. He finally saw the writing on the wall. He pled guilty. So now we go to the penalty phase. And so they are picking a jury to decide whether he gets the a life sentence or the death penalty. But all the families are pushing for the death penalty, and we hope that the state attorney will get it. We try to ask everybody this question. You answer it as you choose, of course. But where do you stand on guns? No, I'm definitely for some gun safety measures. It's crazy that we live in a country that has 350 million guns and probably 20 million AR-15s right now. I don't believe someone needs to own these horrible weapons of war and have thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition and clips that can hold dozens and dozens of bullets. If you're not in the military, you should not be allowed to possess those. But I have focused on school safety. There are a lot of gun safety measures that that we implemented. So like we implemented a red flag law, an emergency risk protection order, which is designed to take weapons away from violent and mentally unstable individuals to prevent them from hurting themselves or others. It's really such a divisive issue. And we live in a gun culture. That is the world we live in. So that's why I focus on school safety. And there's a lot of things that we can do to make not only our schools safe, but our society safer. And I will continue to, uh, to preach from the rooftops about those. What, what's the hardest part of this for you? 
The hardest part for me is that four years after the shooting, we still haven't fixed the things that, that we know are broken and that led to lives being lost and that led to a failed law enforcement response. That's the hardest thing to me. I just, it just makes me so angry. And people don't know that, you know, the, that these leaders of our county are still fucking around and I still haven't fixed these problems. It's ridiculous. And it's really an abdication of their responsibility. And this is a life safety issue. So it's upsetting, but I will continue to use Alex's voice. He's with me every day to, to advocate for these changes. And so what happened in Parkland can save lives all around the country. And I appreciate you having me on this podcast. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I mean, I hear your anger. You're angry, aren't you? Yeah, I am. It's hard not to be, uh, you know, but, but that's why I continue to advocate. And I, I haven't given up and I will continue to fight to fix these things that, that I know will save lives and make our schools safer and our society safer. Was there anything hopeful about any of this? Tell me something yeah, hopeful. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely think that even amongst the anger that you hear, there is you know some, some positive things that have happened. So the one thing that I can say is that advocacy works and that you can't have a very positive impact. I'm just a father who wanted to do something to prevent this from happening to other families. And we've had a lot of good success. We created the Federal School Safety Clearinghouse we created the Mass Violence Advisory Initiative. And so we've seen that advocacy and parent involvement can have a huge impact. And people that think that just one person can't change the world, that's not true. And after Parkland, a lot of the Parkland families have done a lot of good and made this world a safer place. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've 
enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.